Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Well, most of us can rattle off a list of names of the people who have influenced our recovery through their writing, speaking, advocacy, mentorship, or lived example. Today, we're going to explore a life that has had a huge impact on all of us in recovery, even if we might not be aware of it. That name is Betty Ford. Over the years, the name Betty Ford has become equated with the rehab facility she founded, but her influence during her tenure as First Lady of the United States of America gave her a platform to speak openly about issues that the world was unaccustomed to discussing, things like breast cancer, abortion, drug use, and equal rights, equal rights for women. Her candor on these topics smashed stigmas and opened discussions in a way that society was unaccustomed to. But it was her subsequent battle with alcohol and drug addiction that would have the greatest impact on society. Joining me today is Lisa McCubbin, the author of a new biography about Betty Ford. And Lisa has written several best-selling books about the life in the White House under the Kennedy administration and others. And she joins me today. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thanks so much for having me. I've just so enjoyed reading your book. The last two days, I, I just curled up under a blanket and just got lost in the in the life and times of Betty Ford. What a fascinating subject. Was it a hard book to write, or were you transported as well as you wrote it? Both. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. It was difficult, Um uh, it, it's my first uh, biography. I've written several other nonfiction books, but I had people um, that I was talking about in their memoirs who were living. So the difficult part was that I never got to meet Betty Ford, which makes me very sad now that I know her so well. Um, but I spent about two years writing the book. And fortunately for me, I was able to interview all four of her children So they all were on board and were actually very thrilled that I was going to write a book about their mother because, of course, their father, President Ford, had gained so much attention. And he's the one that people still focus on with his presidential foundation and museum and library. And while there's the Betty Ford Center, um, there hadn't been what I call a proper biography written about this amazing woman. So this is the first real biography about her life from birth to death. And there were two other memoirs that were written about her life before her passing. Um, she passed away at the age of 98, so she had a long a long life. Nine, actually, she was 93, but 90, you were close. Oh, pardon me, 93. <laughs> 93. I'm reading my own writing. She, um, and, yes, yeah, she, wrote, she wrote two memoirs herself, two autobiographies. Um, and both of which um, I'm sure help you shape the story somewhat. But what's amazing reading this now is that we read it understanding the long-term resonance of just some of the honest conversations she had and how she – I'm in my 50s, so you know I was just a kid. My parents might have been watching the news when Nixon was impeached, but they it, – it didn't – you know, it I didn't capture my imagination at the time the way it does now as, uh, you know, being the age that she was back then and realizing what that must have been like for her to go through so many changes. So I wonder, oh, I could go all over the place. It's such an interesting story. But let's, <laughs> I'm going to have you just walk us through, you know, kind of take us through some of the some of the points of the story of, of her life and how she came to our attention as a first lady. But what what was her life like before that? Well, um, this is what's so interesting, and and I think will be interesting to your listeners because they, of course, know the Betty Ford Center, but I think people, very few people know how that all came about. So um, I found so much fascinating about Betty Ford. She was born April 8, 1918, which 
sounds like a very long time ago. Um, indeed, this would have been her 100th birthday anniversary this year. So um, she was born in 1918 in Chicago, and then her family uh, moved around a little bit, and she ended up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So that's where she grew up, and that's where she said her memories began. Um, She had two older brothers, and um, her father was a traveling salesman, so he wasn't around a lot. So her mother was a very strong woman, really basically, you know, a single mom most of the time, raising Betty and her two brothers. And tragedy struck when Betty was 16. She came home one day and her cousin came running out of the house and said, they've taken your father to the hospital. Well, she would find out that her father had committed suicide. It was, imagine she was 16 years old. Um, and then she found out at the, at his funeral that he had been an alcoholic. She never saw signs of that because he apparently, um, was drinking while he was traveling and he just wasn't home that much. And her mother shielded her from that. So it was, that was a time where it was very shameful. So her father had killed himself and then she found out he was an alcoholic. It, it must've been just devastating for her. And it was something I don't know that she ever really dealt with. Um, There wasn't counseling or anything like that at that time. So that was a really pivotal moment in her life. But she had a really strong personality. She was a dancer. And um, dancing requires tremendous discipline. And she absolutely loved that and and was just um, a real spitfire, Uh, had a big personality. Everyone I spoke to who did know her said she was just so much fun to be around and had a great sense of humor. So she was this beautiful dancer, lively woman who liked to have a good time, loved people, loved to socialize. And that was kind of how her personality was growing up. So she ends up marrying Jerry Ford, you know, fast forward. She actually was married before. I don't know if you've gotten to that part yet, but she she was married before for five years and divorced. The five-year um, misunderstanding. <laughs> exactly. And as it turned out, she married a man that was just like her father. So um, she was strong enough, though, to realize that that's not how she wanted to live her life. She was ready to have children and settle down, and the man she had married, Bill Warren, was not going to provide her that kind of stability and the life that she wanted. So this was now in the 40s, and she, um, she, you know, agreed to divorce him or decided to divorce him. And that took a lot of courage at that time. You know, um, this was something that women didn't do back then. So she, this kind of shows you um, this inner strength that she had just growing up and from early on and she decided she was done with men and she wasn't going to get married again. But just a few months later, Jerry Ford showed up and swept her off her feet. So she ends up getting married and um, Jerry Ford ran for Congress. There's, you know, a great story in the book about um, how that all developed, but she didn't realize she was going to be marrying a congressman. She thought she was marrying a Grand Rapids lawyer, and um, Jerry Ford ends up being elected to Congress in 1948, and they moved to Washington, D.C., and that's where she um, had her children and started raising her family as a congressman's wife. So um, she had four children, three boys and a girl, pretty much in quick succession, and was a busy congressman's wife taking constituents all around Washington, D.C., and going to all the dinners and social events that that, that requires. And, um, you know, she had a really good life, but it was overwhelming, as I'm sure many women, myself included, who have children, and, you know, whether you work outside of the home or don't, that is a huge job. And um, she found herself, becoming more and more overwhelmed and, and I think um, depressed at times, wondering, you know, 
what about me? And I, I think a lot of women can relate to that. If you're doing things for your family, for your husband, and sometimes you yourself comes last, you put yourself last. And Betty found herself in that position. Um, her addiction really started slowly. And um, stop me if you want me to, if you want to ask any questions, or I can just keep on telling you the story. Keep going. It's such a good story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, I mean, there's many, many more details in the book about how this all developed, but um, I'll just, I'm just giving you a brief synopsis. Um, she was a wonderful mother, and so she has these four children, and um, in, it was in 1964, she um, was reaching across her kitchen sink to open up the window, and it just wouldn't budge, wouldn't budge, and somehow she pried it open. That In the middle of that night, she woke up in excruciating pain. She had done something to her back, and she could barely move. So her husband ended up taking her to the emergency room and they diagnosed it as a pinched nerve. And they said, there's really nothing we can do about it because of the location. They couldn't do surgery. They put her in traction, um, tried stretching it, massaging, but this pain just continued. And so um, finally, once she left the hospital, they basically gave her some strong pain medication and said, you know, you're going to have to take this to relieve the pain. And she asked the doctor, well, well, what do I do if I'm out somewhere and my, this pain starts again and I find myself immobilized? And the doctor's response was, don't let that happen. Take your pain medication every four hours. So she left with um, prescription pain medication. And the doctor, by the way, didn't ask her, about anything else she was taking or doing. And it was her habit and her husband's habit to have a nightly vodka tonic around five or six o'clock. And she might have one or two. And there was no mention that, well, while you're on this pain medication, it might not be a good idea to have those drinks. And back in those days, so this was in the 60s, um, there wasn't a lot of research into, you know, how alcohol and medications mixed. So it's not unusual that the doctor wouldn't have said anything and not unusual that she wouldn't have known any better. So um, that's how her addiction really started was with this injury and combining it with alcohol. Um, She ended up a year later, basically having a nervous breakdown, which is detailed in the book, um, Susan Ford Bales, who is now in her sixties, Um, was just eight years old at the time and she remembers the incident so vividly because it really panicked her as a young child to see her mother losing control and she had this nervous breakdown and ended up going to a psychiatrist who who really helped her to gain more self-esteem but he also put her on Valium so now she's taking pain meds and Valium and still having those nightly cocktails And it was a recipe for disaster. So that's kind of how her addiction started. Um, But when she got into the White House, and I don't know if you want me to tell the whole history of how she ended up in the White House, but it was rather sudden after Nixon's resignation. um, Her husband, Jerry Ford, was nominated, or actually before Nixon resigned, um, the vice president, Spiro Agnew, resigned in 1973 and so president nixon had to appoint a vice president he ends up appointing jerry ford which made betty the second lady so her husband was vice president and when he became vice president betty was hoping that he was going to retire from politics he had promised her he was going to retire from politics and he said, don't worry, Betty, vice presidents don't do anything. <laughs> Famous last words. This will be a cakewalk, Bess. <laughs> and, yes, we're going to retire just like I promised you. But um, as we all know, that didn't happen. Um, the Watergate investigation and um, in August of 1974, um, Gerald Ford became president 
never having been elected. So in a span of 10 months, Betty Ford went from being a congressman's wife to first lady of the United States. And it was really overwhelming for her. She, she recalled that day as the saddest day of her life. It was not something that she wanted or ever aspired to. And it was a sad time in American history. She had been friends with Pat Nixon and she felt terrible for what the Nixons were going through. Um, So this was a huge change in her life. And um, she's still managing the pain in her back. Now she has a White House doctor. Well, the White House doctor um, doesn't say no to the First Lady. And basically... All she had to do was go downstairs in the White House, and if she had a headache or, you know, needed something for this or that, the the doctor would give it to her. And her assistants told me, I, I interviewed all of her personal assistants inside the White House and outside of the White House, and they noticed that, that there was an issue with her with prescription pain medication. No one ever thought that she had a problem with alcohol, which I think is surprising, would be surprising to most people. Um, it was not alcohol. It was this multitude of prescription pain medications that she was taking and which her doctor knew about. So that to me was was very shocking and surprising and sad. Um and uh, so she hid, she hid it pretty well in the White House because there were a lot of people looking out for her. And it wasn't until they left the White House after Jerry Ford lost the election of 1976. So she was, she was first lady for only two and a half years. And we can go back and talk about all the great things she did as first lady, um, but I'm just focusing on her, her recovery story Um, And it was a year after they left the White House that her family realized there was a a really major problem here. And she had spiraled down into the depths so far that they, her family, thought they were going to lose her. And that's when they did the intervention was April 1st, 1978, one week before her 60th birthday. It really struck me um, as it was becoming apparent, and it was actually one of her assistants who started to really put the pieces together and made a list of all the medications that she could find. Um, She secretly went and opened a drawer and (laughs) started writing the medications. And it was three pages of medications. And that assistant secretly went and, and confronted a doctor who was quite defensive of um, of his uh, prescriptions and and uh, decisions and his his um, treatment of his patient? But it seemed to me that at least in those days, no one was asking about drinking, as you mentioned. But also, no one was really monitoring how she used those medications. Um, I think they felt like whatever they wrote on the label as prescribed um, recommendations sort of absolved them of of any any uh, mis- misuse of those medications after the fact. Um, how well, did, how in did... those days, there, there actually, um, I don't know when this all started, to be honest, but there weren't the kind of, um, you know, specifications on the medicine bottles like we have now. That was a regulation that wasn't in place in those days. Right. So right. it didn't e- wouldn't even have said, you know, maybe just take this, you know, only three times a day. And so the doctor would just prescribe it. And she was really juggling these medications herself. She knew which pills she had to take for certain things. Like if she was feeling sleepy, she knew she had a pill to take to wake her up. And then if she couldn't sleep, she knew she had another one. And she was just kind of juggling them herself. She was doing self medicating basically with these prescriptions and what we know now about painkillers is that once you become addicted to them um, the the withdrawal causes you to feel pain that you know may not be real 
and um, exactly. makes you feel like you have to keep taking them. So she was really caught in a cycle. Um, it, well, I don't think it was fun for her at all. I really think the poor woman was just trying to survive, as as most are when they're caught in addiction. Um, uh, ironic that as she went into the White House, kind of a functioning addict, alcoholic, um, the service that she was called to do as First Lady, I think it really um, helped her to be able to function uh, despite everything she was taking because she was so fulfilled and actually getting recognized for her efforts in a way that she really never had before as um, as the housewife and mom of a congressman who got lots of attention and lots of accolades, but she was sort of the un- unsung hero uh, keeping the family together at home. But once she became first lady, she really was at center stage, and she quite um, she quite shone in that role. And let's talk about some of her accomplishments as first lady because um, – she really had an inability to be dishonest, and it was a breath of fresh air for the press. They had a field day because whatever she asked, she was asked, she would answer. And they asked her some questions that um, other people probably wouldn't have wanted to answer, and, and uh, Betty Ford answered them honestly and really started a national dialogue as a result. So can you talk about that? Sure. She, yeah, there were so many things. Um, when she was uh, the vice president's wife, she um, went down to Georgia and was with Rosalind Carter, who was who would later become first lady. And Rosalind Carter was then the governor's wife, and um, they were doing a little tour together. And the press noticed that Betty was kind of um, acting a little drowsy. Maybe her words were a little slurred. And one of the reporters said. Mrs. Ford, are you on something? And she said, well, I take Valium. You know, just bluntly, she admitted it. And, you know, all these stories then came out. Oh, the vice president's wife admits that she's on pills. Um, But at the time, Valium was the most prescribed drug in America. And I would guess there was a large percentage of women her age that were taking Valium. Um, it, was, it had become as common as having that, you know, nightly martini as everybody did in those days. So she was very honest about that. And then um, the biggest thing, however, was um, about six or seven weeks after she became first lady. So remember, she becomes first lady just suddenly. There was no campaigning. It happened overnight. There was no inauguration, no inaugural balls. All of a sudden, she's first lady. Seven weeks later, she goes in for a routine um, gynecological exam with a friend, and the doctor discovers a suspicious lump on her breast. The normal procedure at that time, this is 1974, was for her to go into the hospital, be put under general anesthesia, and the doctors would take a biopsy. While she was still under general anesthesia, they would test it. And if it came back malignant, they would remove her breast while she was still under anesthesia. So imagine this. She goes into the hospital, A, not knowing if she has cancer, and B, not knowing if she's going to wake up with her breast removed. So that was just terrifying for the family, for everyone. Um, But she had this inner strength, and she said to her husband, I want to be open with the public about this. It was a very personal matter and something that first ladies historically wouldn't have talked about. But she said, you know, if I'm going through this, I know there are thousands of other women going through this as well and getting the same diagnosis, and I want to be open about it. So they put out a press release, and um, we're very open that then she, it did turn out to be breast cancer. She had her breast removed, and it instantly changed the face of women's health care because within hours, women were lining up at their doctor's offices, calling their doctor's offices to get breast exams because 
While it turned out that Betty did indeed have breast cancer, her prognosis was very good because it had been detected early. And so she was really speaking out about early detection. And um, it was it started this national conversation about breast cancer awareness. And from that point on, funding for research and education all started just because Betty Ford had this platform, as you mentioned earlier, and was willing to be open about her own struggles. So that was so huge. And she then realized this platform she had. And like you said, um, she got all these accolades and people thought she was so brave. She got, I think they had about 50,000 letters came to the White House within that first week just telling her how brave she was and people sharing their own stories. And so she realized she had this platform and she could do some good with it. And one of her um, causes that she really wanted to promote was equal rights for women. So she would go on and be a strong supporter for the Equal Rights Amendment after that. And this, just for our younger listeners who don't realize, you know, how recent this is that women were not guaranteed equal pay for equal work. Um, there was even, you couldn't even get a credit card without your husband's signatures in the 70s. Exactly. So women really, um, the ERA was was huge, and we take it for granted in so many ways now. Sometimes I think, have we really come that far? Because there still is a ways to go, but um, her focus on it. Yeah. Yes. And and the Equal Rights Amendment actually has never passed. It didn't pass then. And it's still, we still do not have an Equal Rights Amendment. Um, so that's something I know is um, getting back into the limelight once again, as we here in America have um, more females getting into politics. And I think a lot of people don't realize we still don't have the Equal Rights Amendment. Yeah, so much is assumed now. And to think that... Um, it's taken this long to get not very far really speaks to how how unusual it was for a president's wife to take that position at that time, which I think reflects a lot on the amazing relationship between uh, Jerry and Betty Ford because he respected, she was opinionated and spoke honestly. I'm sure there was times it pained him or honesty, uh, you know, <laughs> was not always to his benefit or hers, but um, but he respected her and and stood by her while she spoke her truth. And um, so let's talk a little bit about that relationship and how they had such an amazing relationship. And yet, um, when it came to her use of drugs and alcohol, um, he really. Much as he loved his wife, he found himself falling into a very typical pattern. Can you talk about that a little, Lisa? Sure. Um, yes, this, the book that I've written, um, and by the way, the, the title is Betty Ford, First Lady, Women's Advocate, Survivor, Trailblazer, which pretty much says it all. Mm, <laughs> she's she amazing. <laughs> um, it's, it's also a love story. Um, because they really did have this wonderful love story that lasted till their dying days and was so respectful. They, uh, they were a true partnership. Um, but, yeah, he, he liked her outspokenness, and um, there was a time in the White House where, you know, she was speaking out about the ERA, and um, some of President Ford's advisors were afraid it was hurting him in the polls, um, and they they went to him and said, President Ford, would you please ask Betty to tone it down? And he looked at them and said, if you want her to tone it down, you go ask her. <laughs> and neither one of them did. And that was Dick Cheney and um, Don Rumsfeld who were the ones who asked. And I, I interviewed them, and they both confirmed that story was true, and they weren't there was no way they were going to confront Betty about that because she was so strong. <laughs> they were a little afraid of her. Um, but so, yeah, he had this, they had this wonderful relationship. And um, uh, when it came to her addiction, he, like the rest of the family, um, after they left the White House, really started seeing that she was changing. And 
he almost they didn't know how to deal with it they and they almost they all they all kind of took on their own roles as you know people in the family do and Jerry Ford was a classic enabler um he he would make excuses for her um if she you know couldn't go to a function he would say she was sick um or he would ask Susan their daughter to fill in at times and they they realized that she was having this problem but they knew that she w- she was in chronic pain and they couldn't tell her you can't take your pain medications right. and none of them none of them knew actually how much medication she was on and the mixing that she was doing um and uh so but um it and Jerry was really one of the last ones to be convinced to do the intervention but he finally came around and um and the story of the intervention, I think, is so powerful and so moving. Um, the The title of the chapter is "We're Doing This Because We Love You," and and one of the things I wanted to highlight um, because I did talk to all the members of the family uh, was how difficult this was for the family to do this, and what courage it took for them to do it, because they knew that it was going to be painful for everyone as an intervention is it's not pretty it's not pleasant but you have to go in with the sole focus that you're trying to save your loved one's life and and that's what they had to keep focusing on and um they just kept saying over and over we're doing this because we love you and um jerry really jerry ford just you know rose up to the occasion he had been president of the united states and had dealt with all kinds of life and death. He had served in World War II, almost lost his own life, had seen people killed in action. But doing the intervention for his wife was literally one of the hardest things he ever had to do in his life. Um, as you said, because he just loved her so much and just never wanted to hurt her. And it did hurt her. It did It did uh, uh, elicit that angry response initially, but... Um, but she did, uh, as we know, <laughs> we yeah. all know the end of the story, which m- right. must have made it a challenging story to tell because we do know how it works out. We know that she not only uh, got sober, but that she went on to change many, 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 uh, countless other lives afterwards. Um, but it's really the story of what happened then that we sort of see our hero, you know, rise from the ashes sort of because she went into treatment and really um, – with this spirit that that you know you come to know her through the story through your through your work as a very determined hard-working disciplined person very kind um very funny and very strong and those are great qualities to go into rehab with if you also have a willingness to get sober um because those right. things served her very well in treatment and um i think as her eyes were opened uh, especially through listening to other people, uh, her eyes were really opened to the effect that her uh, drug use over the years had had on her own family. And it was out of her love and kindness that she really, I think, found her motivation to fully heal. Um, one thing I found fascinating, and, and it, it resonates forward into the treatment center that she founded, was that when she first went to treatment, it was not to anything posh, that's for sure. She went in a military hospital and uh, was quite surprised after being accustomed to being handled quite nicely as the first lady to go into an, um, a rather um, Spartan military hospital and be shown a cot in a room with four other cots. Um, perhaps had she known that's what she was going to <laughs> she may not have have gone, but she. I did, think you're right. She probably she did over have. time. She came to see the benefit of that. And can you explain what the benefit of not treating her specially was? Why did why why was it important that she go into treatment the same as anyone else? And and uh, what did she learn about herself through that process? 
process. Yeah, well, I, I always say to people, you know, when she went into treatment, there were no Betty Ford centers. <laughs> there wasn't <laughs> such a thing. There wasn't such a thing. This was, um, as you mentioned, it was it was a naval hospital. So she was in treatment with a bunch of sailors. Um, she was put in a room with three other women, and um, she didn't like it at first, but um, she realized over the course of the 30 days that she was there, it took her a while that um, she had to be treated just like anyone else because everyone, they were all going through the same thing she was, whether, you know, they were, um, whether it was a a naval doctor that was there, whether it was a a captain or, you know, an enlisted woman, um, that had started drinking, you know, when she was 15 and they, they all had different circumstances, but they were all in the same place now and it had affected their families and was affecting them in the same way. And she realized that it it was important that she not be given special treatment. And when she came to that realization, when she then started the Betty Ford center, um, which the idea came a year or two later, she said, I want to have this the same way. It's not going to be posh. And if celebrities come here, they're not going to be given any special treatment. And there's always going to be one room with four beds because that was, she really found the benefit in that, in having to share the room with three other people. Most of the rooms would have two beds. There would not be any single rooms because, she just felt that there was um, so much benefit in sharing this experience with other people and relating to other people. So, um, yeah, that that stayed true. And and the other thing about the Betty Ford Center when she started was she wanted an equal number of beds for women as for men, and that was something that hadn't been done before. And to this day, the Betty Ford Center is the only treatment center. I believe in the world that has an equal number of beds for women as for men. I I love that she insisted on that because I mean it not only um follows her lifetime support for um equal rights for women but equal access to treatment was so important to her and one thing that um, um that she really realized was that it was harder for women to ask for help than it was yeah. for men, and that women were treated more um, as emotionally uh, disabled rather than uh, addicted and treated as the, for the disease that they have. Um, so I think she did a lot for women just in that regard, too, of giving women not only the permission to talk about it, because we'll, we'll get to this in a second, but, but to give them access to treatment in a way that really hadn't been there before. And exactly. also to keep it affordable was very important to her so that it wouldn't just become a celeb haven, but that everyone exactly. should have the same ability to go to treatment. Um, in talking about her treatment, um, initially, uh, her treatment was sort of revealed in a couple of stages. The fact that she, in, that she, uh, you know, once again, the truth was told that she was in treatment, um, but how did they initially announce her treatment uh, to the media? So when she um, when she agreed after the intervention to go into treatment, um, she she was hesitant to make it public. But um, you know, in talking with the doctors and with her husband, she was afraid she was going to embarrass her husband, and um, you know that was the last thing she wanted to do. So when he said, "No, I'm not embarrassed." And we really think that we should be open about this. She agreed to put out a public statement and said that she at first said she had an addiction to prescription medication. And while in treatment, um, she realized that she was also addicted to alcohol. And that was a harder thing for her to admit um, because there was more of a stigma on that um, because you know, in her mind, it was, well, that was, that was my choice rather than a doctor telling me I could take things, you know. So that was a harder thing for her to do. But when she came out and admitted that publicly, once again, people just 
applauded her courage and her bravery for doing this. And people related to her. It just touched people who were in the same situation as she was. And they realized they weren't alone. And when she was able to get well, it was like they could say, wow, if Betty Ford can do this, so can I. You know, if she can come out there and admit this, she was first lady. She was one of the most recognized women in the world, glamorous, elegant, and she can admit it. Well, then so can I. And it did start, um, again, a national conversation that had, that really hadn't, wasn't talked about. It was something, you know, if, if you knew someone or had someone in your family that was struggling, you, you didn't want to talk about that and people weren't willing to admit it and she made it okay. What do you think it is about her that made that work out? I mean, it feels to me that other people have tried to be honest or be open about things, and it doesn't work out so well for them. (laughs) What was it about her that gave her the ability to be so well-received when she spoke the truth? Um, Well, you know, she was – you could tell she was authentic. Mm -hmm. There was just nothing inauthentic about her. Um, I I do talks about the book, and one of the things I do is I play a three-minute clip of her being interviewed on 60 Minutes in 1975. And um, it's kind of appalling some of the questions that Morley Safer asked her, but even more surprising is her answers and her just, her honesty and her candor. She was just so candid all the time. You knew she was telling you the truth, and she spoke from the heart, and um, and people knew that, and they they felt an empathy towards her, I think, and uh, she just had a relatability. She was like, you know, the the girlfriend next door. Um, she didn't put on any airs, and um, and I think the other thing that helped her to succeed was just the strong support of her family around her. Um, she did have a loving family, and that husband who cared so deeply about her. And um, and he he stopped drinking a year or so later too. He never really drank that much, but he realized, you know, if Betty stopped drinking, then you know I might as well too. And never the two of them never drank again. It just wasn't a part of their lives. And he realized that that was an important step for him to support her. Their marriage was amazing. Um, you're right; it really is a love story. Uh, of of two strong personalities that um, show us how it's done in so many ways. Um, I want to talk a little bit about in treatment how it was explained to the family that being first lady was actually part of her problem. Um, we've talked about this a little bit in, in sort of being equal with the other patients and in the ways that um, – her staff treated was the serving at the pleasure of the first lady. How, how did that undermine her wellness in the end? Do you think? Well, um, like her assistants who would pack her bags when she would go on a trip, there was one assistant who was in charge of packing her little medicine bag. And she saw all these medicines that were going along with her. And she had, um, had a she was a nurse and so she you know had some medical training and she started questioning this um but she felt that you know she was she was a subordinate and she couldn't say to the first lady hey why are you taking all these things you know that just you just didn't do that and um she took it upon herself to go to the white house doctor and even then the White House doctor was her superior, and he basically said, mind your own business. You don't have a medical degree. So, um, it, you know, it, it really, being First Lady, there were people who were concerned about her, but because of that position, they didn't feel that, that they were able to help her in the way she needed help. I mean, it, it had to come from, from the family, and the family just, they didn't really realize what the problem was until it had gotten so bad and and then they needed medical help to help them get through it. 
So, yeah, I think being first lady, it, it really was part of the problem because people just gave her whatever she wanted. And I think it's the same with celebrities. You know, they, they get into that and they get people around them who maybe are not the best influences um, and they don't want to say no to them because they want to keep their job. Um, and it, I'm sure it happens in, in all professions as well, not just celebrities. I think our listeners will really relate to the understanding that addiction is largely about isolation and disconnect from community. And whether that comes because you've been elevated uh, to a high position mm-hmm. as a celebrity or first lady or because you've stopped leaving your house, um, right. healing, healing really has to involve connection with other people. And it really gives me pause, you know, as I watch the news or look at anything where we're locking people away or separating them or putting them up on pedestals and then expecting them to thrive and lead us and do well. Um, it, it really is a super human task that we're asking of them. You mentioned the it family is. and uh, the importance of the family in in helping her heal and in bringing, uh, the, making the intervention, you know, occur and be successful. Um, the family also played a role in her addiction as well as families do. Um, Can we talk about those roles a little bit that different members of the family fell into? Um, Because I feel like that, just ironically, her family sort of fit them quite perfectly uh, with her husband as the enabler, and then each of the children sort of took up different roles um, that helped perpetuate her addiction. Um, and it's, it was fascinating to me how it happened so consistently and so instinctively, and certainly none of them, you know, consciously took up those roles. But let's talk a little bit about what some of the some of the ways that the family played a role or took on different um, aspects of perpetuating addiction. Yeah. So Mike Ford. Mike was the oldest, the oldest son. And um, so he was in high school when, um, you know, his dad was um, the minority leader in Congress and was gone all the time. And when um, Betty really, um, you know, they were seeing things were happening um, where maybe she couldn't fulfill a role at, um, you know, a church function that she had signed up for. And she, you know, Mike wouldn't want her to be embarrassed. So he would, um, you know, let her take a nap or whatever she needed to do, and he would go and fulfill the role that she had said she would do. So he you know, kind of covered for her, and he ended up driving the kids around to their practices when she wasn't able to. And so he just kind of slipped into that role of sort of, you know, the caregiver. And Susan, the youngest one, ended up being the fixer. She wanted to, you know, fix everything and calm it down. And there's a a scene in the book where, um, you know, Betty kind of just is having this nervous breakdown. And even though Susan is the youngest, the boys, the three boys look to her to fix it. And so she was always the one that could go to her mother and say, mom, mom, it's okay. You know, we love you and everything's all right. So she took on this role of just trying to calm everybody down and make everybody happy. And one of the other sons, um, he kind of fell into the role of, you know, he would act out. And it was, you know, I think this does happen in families where they don't realize what's going on because when you're in the middle of it, that's what's normal to you as a child. You've grown up in this environment, and you don't know anything different, so that's their normal. And their coping mechanisms were to to take on these different roles. And as you said, they end up perpetuating her addiction because they allow her to keep on doing what she's doing. Right. And so, for example, the, the sort of problem child role, without even realizing it, you know, they they're allowing themselves to be a scapegoat to act up and take attention away from whatever negative thing is going on with the parent that's struggling or the family member that's struggling. 
And then you also talk about the lost child, the one that doesn't ask for much and doesn't get very much and just sort of becomes uh, um, sort of self-sufficient and stays out of the way. And uh, everyone just sort of takes to their corner and, and did what needed to, to be done. It was so It was so beautiful to me that that they were all able to give up those roles in order to save her and to help her save herself. Uh, and then, and, you know, as they, and they, as they were talking to me now, you know, as adults and um, most of them are, are two, two of them are now grandparents themselves, you know, so they have children and grandchildren of their own and just looking back on this um, from a completely different perspective um, and, and being at peace with all of that and not blaming anyone. Um, that's another important part of the intervention process is, you know, not to blame um, and to just realize this was just something that happened and you have to move forward. And now let's, we all need to heal. It was, it's not just Betty getting well, but the whole family then had to heal. And once she got well, her personality changed as I'm sure, you know, many of your listeners have dealt with this as well. And that's then a, you have a different relationship now with your loved ones. And sometimes that's hard for them to see this new person because they're used to the old person and now their coping mechanisms aren't working the same. <laughs> so it's, um, it's a big change for everyone and, and it requires so much work and so much therapy. And one of the things um, that I found at the Betty Ford Center, I, I had really unprecedented access at the Betty Ford Center. I was there for several days and um, met with, you know, the administrators and got to tour rooms and speak with some patients. And one of the things that from the beginning they focused on is their family program. This isn't, you can't just treat the individual you have to make the family aware and treat them as well in terms of educating them and helping them see what they need to do to help their loved one get well and to make this, you know, you, you can't just throw someone into treatment for a month and then throw them back out and expect that everything's going to be fine. There has to be follow-up. And that's another thing that the Betty Ford Center started was an alumni program. So they have people all around the world, a network of people. So when someone comes out of the Betty Ford Center, they automatically have someone in their area who's going to follow up with them so that they don't feel like they're all alone again because it's so easy to fall back into old habits if you don't have that support network, which is just incredibly important, whether it's going to AA meetings um, or, um, you know, having someone who's been through the same treatment you have. How did uh, Betty Ford go from being a woman in treatment and a recovery advocate to being the name of a treatment center? How did that unfold? Well, it happened um, about a year after she was in treatment her next-door neighbor and best friend, Leonard Firestone, of the Firestone Tire family, very wealthy man, um, he was an alcoholic and had been, he had just gone to the depths. And his wife came over to Betty and Jerry and said, um, we're going to lose Leonard if, you know, we've got to do something. We need to do an intervention, just like you know, they had done with Betty. And so Betty and Jerry were involved in this intervention for their friend, Leonard Firestone. And now remember, there still is no Betty Ford Center to go to. So he went to, you know, a, a treatment center at a hospital um, and, you know, basically got detoxed and after a month came out and was a changed person. And a bunch of his friends saw this changed man and said, wow, you and Betty are just, it's like, you know, you, you have this aura around you. And so many people said that to them, that, that Leonard Firestone said to Betty, you know what, we need to do something about this. We need to use our name and what we've learned for good to help other people. We have the resources and the connections that we can 
do something. And so they got together and they, and she was very involved with um, getting different laws passed in California because there was no such thing as a standalone treatment center. They were all in hospitals. And so to have a standalone treatment center, they had to get special regulations passed. And then Leonard and Betty went around the country looking at different treatment programs and got the best minds together to form um, their own treatment center. And one day, uh, one of the doctors that they had been working with said, you know, we need a better name for this. It had some long clinical name that they were calling it. And they said, we think it should be called the Betty Ford Center. And at first, Betty said, no, she didn't want it. And the reason why, which she later admitted, was she was afraid if she put her name on that, she would never be able to have a drink again. And so this is, you know, a year or two out of her own treatment, and she's still having those thoughts. And that's when everybody said, well, that's exactly why you should put your name on this. <laughs> Talk about accountability. And, <laughs> right, Exactly. And, and, you know, one of the tenets that she had learned was you have to give it away to keep it. And so this was, she realized this would be her way of, of giving it away so that she could keep her own sobriety. And once she agreed to put her name on the center, she, she ran it by her family because she didn't want them to be, have this stigma. And they said, no, 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 it's no stigma at all. We are so proud of you, mom. There could make maybe nothing better than for you to put your name on that center. And um, so they went around and they raised the three or $6 million, what it cost at that time um, to build the Betty Ford center. And it was, um, opened in October of 1982 and Betty had her handprint on everything. She didn't just put her name on it. She picked out the curtains and the wallpaper and hung the pictures. And then once it opened, she was there. She, you know, met all the patients. And if there was somebody really struggling, she would have a one-on-one meeting with them. And now remember, this is a former first lady and then once a month she would um, talk to all of the patients and tell her own story. And that just was so impactful. And the other thing that I found out that I, that I really loved was um, every Memorial day, they would have a barbecue at the Betty Ford center for all the patients that were there. And Betty would be pouring the lemonade and people would be going around getting their food and they'd go over to the grill to get a hamburger or a hot dog and guess who was there behind the grill cooking the hamburgers and hot dogs? The former, <laughs> the former president of the United States, Gerald Ford. <laughs> so that he ended up just taking a back seat to her and letting her shine, and he was just thrilled for her. It was really her turn to to shine for sure, and to, to make her impact on the world. And did she ever? Um, service is such an important part of recovery, and it, I, I took note of, of one comment that uh, she made, which was actually a comment about marriage uh, in the 60 Minutes interview when they were sort of asking her about her marriage, and you know, it was a time when equal rights were uh, was a catchphrase that was new in a, a women's lib, and the idea of men having to make their own lunch was, you know just ridiculous <laughs> that, or that men might have to vacuum now and then I mean that just was <laughs> that was a revol- revolutionary idea and so he sort of was asking her what 50-50 looked like in her home um, I think trying to get her to emasculate her husband and she said oh I don't think 50-50 is what it is I think it's 70-30 and if both partners give 70 and expect 30 uh, everyone's going to be happy in in a relationship where you're both are just trying so hard and giving so much and and both are feeling so grateful for what they get in return and it, that to me just spoke to how she really seemed to live her life that she just really went the extra mile for other people and felt that that was how how we should all live and that that was really the secret to a great life i agree i love that comment too um so eye opening and I think if, you know, 
at people in any relationship, if you can think about that, giving 70 and expecting 30. And if both parties are giving 70, she said, you can't help but be happy. <laughs> Love it. Um, before we go, I'm just curious about what impact writing this book had on you. Did you feel any personal insights or, or changes in your own life as you were learning about this woman? Um, you know, I really felt Betty's spirit with me um, this entire time. And I did have some personal things that happened um, um, with a family member who um, it, it sparked a conversation about um, their own recovery. And it was something that we had never discussed before because it just hadn't been discussed in our family. And um, it helped me to find the words to, to talk about it and has brought us closer together because of it. And, and that's what I really hope this book will do also is kind of provide um, a little bit of a guidebook maybe for people to, who are struggling, will see themselves in Betty or will see their mother or their wife in Betty and be able to, um, to help them and know that it's, it, it, it can, there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's kind of like walking through, through fire and you might get singed on the way, but you're going to come out the other side and be stronger and better for it. I'm so glad you wrote this book because I now have another, um, hero in my toolbox of heroes, another another person to look up to and uh, another woman that I can admire and learn from. And I really would not have known all of the amazing, inspiring aspects of her personality if not for this book. So I'm very grateful to you, Lisa, for writing such a wonderful memoir and such an informative uh, book and historical and insightful and inspiring. Thank you so much for your work. Oh, thank you, Jean. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Tell our listeners how can they find you, how can they learn more about your book, Betty Ford, First Lady, Woman's Advocate, Survivor, Trailblazer. Where can we purchase this book as well as your other books? Um, it's available at all major bookstores. Um, you're, I like to support independent local bookstores as well as you can purchase it online. Um, it um, you can go to my website is lisamccubbin.com and that's two c's and two b's lisa mccubbin <laughs> and um, i'm on twitter and facebook uh, my twitter is at lisa underscore mccubbin and um, so yeah just um, send me a message i love hearing from readers and um, sparking this whole conversation it's you know, it's really important and on so many levels. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for sharing all this time to talk about this wonderful book. Thank you, Jean. Thanks for what you do. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. So listeners, I'm, I just it occurred to me as Lisa and I were talking that perhaps some of you listeners have uh, yourselves been at the Betty Ford Center, and I wonder if, if that is the case, if maybe you would write to me and let me know a little bit about what this book and this interview has uh, sprung in your mind, any thoughts you want to share with us. Uh, you can either write to me at thebubblehour.com or you can make a little voice memo on your phone and email it to me there as well. That's it for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care. I own it, I did that, not proud that that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses, I just want to be free. Just stay and wait.
want to leave 